And we conclude our series in the New Testament postcards as we finish uh, with the letter of Jude. Jude is a strong letter. It doesn't fit well into our politically correct way of talking. The short letter has some important truth for us as it challenges us to contend for the faith, to recognize the false, to build ourselves up in the faith, and to help others in spiritual need. Jude has a theme, a main point that he's trying to get across in this short letter. It's our challenge to learn it, and it's our duty to heed it. The letter of Jude is a powerful letter about contending for the faith against forces that want to take it down from within. So please turn in your Bible. So the letter of Jude, it's the second to last letter in our Bibles. And I just want to read a couple verses, verses 3 and 4. Jude, verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Father, now it is our privilege to lift up our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. It is our privilege now to look into the Word, to learn about Him and to conform our lives to him. Truly our only master and Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Remember we saw last week that verse 3 tells us the reason Jude wrote the letter. The beginning of verse 3 tells us it was his desire to write them all about the amazing truth of our common salvation. He says, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. His initial desire was to write a positive letter speaking about the amazing blessings and the depth and the, and the wisdom and the knowledge and the power of the salvation we've been given. What stopped him from writing that letter was that the very salvation that he wanted to write about was under attack. The urgency of the moment compelled him to address the false teaching that was disparaging the very truth of salvation. The beauty of it all that he wanted to write about. He has no choice. He must contend for the faith. To contend is to struggle with difficulty and danger. It's a strong word. And the contending he calls his readers to do is ongoing. The word contend stresses the need to continually, to vigorously be defending the faith. The fight against false teachers is never over. It was before us and it will be after us. We are commanded to contend for the faith. The faith is the essence of the gospel message of salvation. That's what's being attacked That's what's being watered down. The faith is described as the once for all delivered to the saints' faith. Once for all refers to something that has been accomplished, that's completed. Jude is saying that the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is complete. 
It needs no additions or no corrections. The faith has once for all been delivered by God in his word to us. He said, I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, our American culture isn't known for having a strong connection to the past. It's one of the things that makes us such an innovative and ever-growing modern society. And at the same time, it's one of the things that brings us great weakness. Always thinking that the new is more valuable than the old. I recently heard at a C.S. Lewis lecture that C.S. Lewis called this chronological snobbery. Only the English could come up with that, right? Chronological snobbery. That's the thinking that knowledge of an earlier time is inherently inferior to that of our time. It's a thinking that people of earlier time periods were less intelligent than us. Therefore, we think that our time and our culture and our thinking is superior. J.I. Packer describes the same attitude as the newer is the truer. Only what is recent is decent. Every shift of ground is a step forward. And every latest word must be hailed as the last word on the subject. Beloved, listen to me now. As followers of Christ, we do not believe that. We don't believe that. Not in the, not in the least do we believe that. We are to contend for the faith that is once for all been delivered to the saints. I've said before, I remember one of my seminary professors so vividly saying this, and the teacher at this C.S. Lewis event said this. He said that all good and true pastors teach nothing new. All good and true pastors teach nothing new. Everything I teach has long been taught before. Now, it might be new To me, and it might be new to us, but it best not be new to the 2,000-year heritage of the teaching of the Scriptures. My seminary professor said very boldly, all red in the face, powerfully, said, if you come up with something new that the Bible has never taught before, you're wrong. See, now it's new to us, it's fresh to us. But for it to be true, it's part of the once for all delivered to the saints' faith. And this continuity gives us confidence. Think about this. This stability gives us strength. This permanence gives us potency. Back in the earliest start of the church, what we would call our doctrinal statement, they called their rule of faith. So listen now, I'm going to read from Tertullian, a church father, as he wrote the rule of faith. It's going to be on the, on the screen there behind you so you can follow along as I read. He wrote this around 280, over 1,800 years ago. This is what he said. We believe that there is only one God and that there is none other than the creator of the world who produced all things out of nothing through his word. First of all, send forth that this word is called his son. 
and under the name of God was seen in diverse manners by the patriarchs, heard at all times in the prophets, at last brought down by the spirit and power of the Father into the Virgin Mary, was made flesh in her womb, and being born of her, went forth as Jesus Christ. Thenceforth he preached the new law and the new promise of the kingdom of heaven, worked miracles, having been crucified, he rose again on the third day. Then having ascended into the heavens, he sat at the right hand of the Father, sent instead of himself the power of the Holy Ghost to lead such as believe, will come with glory to the saints to the enjoyment of everlasting life and of the heavenly promises and to condemn the wicked to everlasting fire and the resurrection of both these classes shall have happened together with the restoration of their flesh. That great statement of faith was written 1,800 years ago for the once for all delivered faith is true. Later on in church history, they codified doctrinal statements into creeds, the most famous of which, perhaps you've heard, is called the Apostles' Creed, which was penned in 390 AD, over 1,600 years ago. And it says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Powerful doctrinal statements of truth. Nearly 2,000 years old. Why read these ancient documents? Because we don't think the newer is truer. We believe that there has been a once for all delivered to the saints faith. And we can glean the riches of the truth of that over our heritage of millennia. It's so important to grasp. They aren't just old. They represent the constant, consistent continuance of the faith that has been given to us in the Word of God. The essence of what we believe has been taught and believed on for 2,000 years. That's the remarkable quality of the eternality of God's truth. There is a once-for-all faith that has been passed on to us. It's not new. It's not novel. It has not changed. It's old, thousands of years old. And it's still as powerful today as it was for Jude as it was for the early church, as it lit the fires of the Reformation, 
And as it reaches to every corner of our world today, this continuity of truth gives us strength, gives us stability, gives us wisdom, gives us hope. Knowing the truth is the very lens by which we evaluate what is false. We know what is false because we've been given the truth, the truth of the once-for-all delivered faith. I found this great quote from Albert Moeller. He said, We live in a day where there's spirituality, but not Christianity. That's not a category found in Scripture. There's no Christianity that isn't doctrinal Christianity. Christianity is based on events that took place in space and time and history. It is a faith of definite, essential beliefs. He said the Apostles' Creed is a way of summarizing the Christian faith so that Christians can be grounded in the truth and be able to detect false doctrine and false Christianity. Because of the clarity of knowing the truth, the truth then becomes the very lens by which we evaluate what is false. You can't discern the false without knowing what is true. It is from this evaluative basis of the truth that Jude calls out certain people who have crept into the church. Jude never names the specific names or the specific heresy, the specific group. He just calls them certain people. And then he describes their heresy, their error. I think this is very helpful for us in two ways. One is that it makes his teaching more readily applicable to to every age, because in every age we have to deal with false teachers creeping into the church. And secondly, I think it's helpful because, as we see at the end of the letter of Jude, it shows his hope, his desire to rescue the people from the error. Jude's heart is not one of condemnation. He is very poignant in his exposure of their error, But his goal isn't just simply to write them off. But his hope is that in pointing out the error, he wants to call them to the grace of God, call them back to the mercy of God. The goal isn't to condemn, but to rescue. He says in verses 22 and 23, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by flesh. Verse 4 is a key verse. It gives us three main points of error that these false teachers were committing. The three points of error is, one, they are ungodly. Two, they are perverting the grace of God for their own selfishness. And three, they are denying Jesus as the Lord, the ruler of their life. All of these have the same central theme, self and pride and me first. At the heart of false teaching is a willful decision to twist God and his word. To try to get what you want. Instead of humility to God and his word, they manipulate it to use it to get what they want. Their agenda first. Their will first. Their desire first. First, he describes their character. They are ungodly. That basically means that they are living their lives without any reckoning of God. 2 Timothy 3, 5 describes them as having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. 
They're only playing at religion while possessing no genuine fear of God, no genuine love for God. It's about control and manipulation and selfishness, not faith, hope, and love. Secondly, they're described as perverting the grace of God. This describes their conduct. The great error that was infiltrating the early church is called Gnosticism. One commentator described Gnosticism saying that Gnosticism declared that the spirit was good, but the material was evil. Therefore, the spiritual was to be cultivated and fed with freedom to pursue its good inclinations. And the Gnostics felt that they could give vent to the desires of their flesh. Thus, the heart of this apostasy was that it turned the grace of God into license and lasciviousness. And Jude wrote to warn of this dual apostasy of wrong conduct and false doctrine. The heresy of Gnosticism separated the spiritual from the physical. One could pursue God with the spiritual, while at the same time live for the desires of the body. They could say, we're followers of Christ, but at the same time feel free to live an immoral, self-gratifying life. They were twisting God's grace into a license that allowed them to live their lives however they wanted. They say there's no need to conform your life to the truth of God's word. God is love. God is grace. All he wants you to do is be happy. To do whatever you choose. Oh, how what is old has become new in our day. Well, that leads directly to this third description of the false teachers, their creed. They deny the lordship of Christ over their lives. They call themselves Christians, but yet at the same time they won't submit to Jesus as their ruler, as their king, as their lord. They deny the rightful position of Christ. Jesus' word is not the authority The once-for-all-delivered faith is of little consequence. See, folks, this threefold description of false teachers is insightful, helpful, powerful. Their character, living their lives like there's no reckoning with God. Their conduct, twisting God's grace so they can live their lives however they want. Their creed, denying Jesus as their Lord rejecting that Jesus and his teaching has any binding authority over their lives. All the while they're doing this, they're calling themselves Christians. This false teaching was creeping into the early church. Well, folks, it still is. It's more rampant today than ever. It's so prominent nowadays that we even advertise for it. We advocate for it. We are bombarded with this false teaching nearly on a daily level. There's a great challenge in our day as major denominations drift from the once-for-all delivered faith under the guise of God's love. They say, we don't need to conform ourselves to the teaching of the Bible. We're spiritual. We're enlightened. 
We are new and we are right. The Bible is old and wrong. There's a great challenge in our day as a very definition of what it means to be a real Christian is bantered around in our politics. Have you noticed the headlines over the past two weeks? This very debate is raging on with the historic Christian faith being deemed as immoral and unloving. And the so-called new licentious Christian faith being deemed as moral and loving. What it means to be a Christian is getting redefined right before our very eyes, right now in our culture, with a total disregard to the lone authoritative source and voice, the Bible, that actually defines it. There's a great challenge in our day, even within the true church of Christ, to overly emphasize God's love and grace to the point of eliminating the reality of sin and our need to live godly lives. If Jude was writing his letter today, he'd write the exact same letter. Probably even stronger. With more of a broken heart with more of an urgency about the need for true followers of Christ to contend for the faith. We live in a time of spiritual crisis for the faith as forces inside the church and outside the church try to destroy the headship of Christ. They try to abolish the lordship of Christ over their lives. They try to demolish the authority of Christ and his word. All in the name of love and and grace. All with no reference to a future reckoning with the holy God. All twisting God's love and grace to get to their own ends and their own wants. All denying Christ and that his teaching has any authority over them. This message might not be a politically correct message, but it is the correct message. And it has absolutely nothing with me saying it. It has absolutely nothing to do with you believing it or you saying it. The truthness of this message has absolutely nothing to do with us. It is simply and only true because the faith, the once For all, delivered to the saints, faith, the Bible tells us. And it stands in authority over us. Over our world. In verses 5 through 16, Jude powerfully uses account after account to illustrate and further describe these false teachers. There's some rich study in digging into these illustrations. But for our purposes this morning, as I try to to put the whole scope of Jude together, we're going to just let the impact of the the wholeness of the message come to us. So verses 5 through 16 are Jude's illustrations of what he already taught in the three descriptions of what we just talked about in these false teachers in verse 4. 
They're ungodly and they're perverting the grace of God for their own selfishness and they're denying Jesus as Lord and ruler of their lives. And illustration after illustration, using Old Testament references and biblical accounts, he underscores the truth of these, these three pillars of their false teaching. These biblical illustrations, he's portraying the heart of the wickedness and that the deception is so pervasive in these false teachers. The point he is making is a point we are making today. False teaching is real and serious and an issue within the church that must be dealt with. Well, in verse 17, he starts a new section of his letter where he now takes the reality of of these false teachers and he says, here's what you need to do about it. Church, what do we do? We're in this time of, of, of spiritual crisis. What do we do? Look at Jude, verses 17 to 23. Jude says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others, show Mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. There are six commands in these verses, 17 to 23. Six things that we're supposed to do in dealing with the false teachers. First, we're to remember the teaching and the warning of the apostles. We're to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. We're to pray in the Holy Spirit. We're to keep ourselves in the love of God. We're to look for the mercy of the Lord that leads to eternal life. We're to show mercy to the doubting and to those caught in false teaching. We're supposed to remember and build and pray and keep and look and show. First, we're to remember Remember the teaching of the apostles as they warned us that false teachers would come into the world. Verse 18 is actually Jude quoting from the apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3.3 where it says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come into the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. The apostle Paul the Apostle Peter, and the Apostle John. The Apostles all warned multiple times in their letters that false teachers are trying to creep into the church. Even Jesus warned several times, saying, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. We should not be surprised by false teachers in the church. As a matter of fact, we should remember that we have been told that they are coming. And therefore, we should be on our guard, contending for the faith, 
evaluating what is taught to make sure that's in accord with the once for all delivered faith. The Christian life is a thinking life. The Christian life is full of doctrine and theology and Bible knowledge. It's imperative to engage your mind in the Christian life. The best defense against false teaching is having a good offense. And the number one way to have a strong offense is to be biblically literate. You have to know the book. There is no other alternative. You got to know it. You have to know something first before you can call it into remembrance and then use it to evaluate. Secondly, it says we are to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. This is taking what we know about God's word and actually putting into practice. Point one, know the Bible. Point two, do the Bible. This is action. We have personal responsibility to build our lives up in the most holy faith. You are responsible to build your life up in the faith. We're to build our lives. Every person is building. The question is, what are you building? How are you building your life? What are you building your life on? Is it being built on a most holy faith? Is it being built on God's word? Or on the shifting sands of earthly pursuits? Jesus, of course, had the best illustration of this. Recorded for us in Matthew chapter 7. He said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. But it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. You see, in our battle against false teachers, we need to be properly focused on our own spiritual growth and advancement, taking responsibility to building our lives on the rock in obedience to Christ in the most holy faith. Next, it says we're to pray. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit is praying consistent with the power and the plan of the Holy Spirit. Praying in the Holy Spirit is praying, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Praying in the Holy Spirit is praying in concert with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Verse 18 says that these false teachers were devoid of the Spirit. But true followers of Christ are supposed to be so filled with the Spirit, so dependent upon the Spirit, that our very prayers are in Him. The battle against false teachers isn't won by argument, but by the work of the Spirit. Prayer is key, and perhaps is the greatest challenge 
for us. It helps us understand the teaching of the false. Prayer guards us against false teaching. And prayer softens our hearts. It gives us wisdom to understand how to minister to those who are caught in false teaching. Prayer. So important. Next, we're commanded to keep ourselves in the love of God. You see, false teachers, as they claim to love God, have actually turned their back on God. False teachers are all about themselves and about loving themselves. Verse 16 describes them as following their own sinful desires. They say they love God, but saying you love someone is not actually the same thing as actually loving them. Because love is an action, love is a decision. Jesus talks about this principle, about abiding in his love. Again, Jesus so powerfully says in John chapter 15, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You know when things are good between you and your spouse, I mean, just really good. When things are just really clicking between you and your best friend, that's abiding love. When relationships are healthy and vibrant, that is keeping yourself in the love of God. When you keep your relationship with Him healthy and vibrant and alive when you're abiding in his love and it's the joy of your heart to keep his commandments abiding in his love. The next command is to look for the mercy of Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. The word look here means to wait with great expectancy. Part of the way we can deal with false teachers is to have eternity in view, anticipating the Lord's word, to return trusting in the mercy of Jesus. With eternity in view, we can more clearly see the sad end of the false teachers who do not have, who do not know the mercy of Jesus. Yet Jesus is so merciful to us. He's so merciful to his followers, not giving us to do punishment of our sins and what they deserve, but taking that punishment upon himself and forgiving our sins. In Ephesians 2, it says that God is rich in mercy. What a great description. Rich in mercy. And so should we. The last command is in verse 22. It's to show mercy. We're to show mercy to doubters. People who are wavering need our mercy, our understanding, our help, our support to bring the doubter back into the faith. People caught in the whirlwind of false teaching need mercy from us as we help them to deal with their doubts. Here's some good advice on how to handle doubts. Because doubts are a normal part of life. So how do we deal with doubts? Write it down. We doubt our doubts. Doubt your doubts. 
See, doubts can be used of God to lead us to a deeper and better understanding of Him. Seek Him, and, and with your doubts, seek the help and encouragement of others. Doubt your doubts. Also, in our mercy, we are to reach out and rescue those who are following these false teachings. Their future is bleak, it says, but we have that lifeline of truth that can rescue them out of the fire, rescue them from the false teaching, turning them from death to life. The words of a great hymn came to mind. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin in the grave, weep o'er the erring one, lift up the fallen, tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. And to some so steeped in false teaching, we're to show mercy, but with a sober awareness of not letting their sin affect us. See, the bottom line is that one of our first responses to false teaching should be to show mercy. For our Jesus has shown us such mercy. We're to show mercy to those who are struggling. We're to reach out and to help those who are caught in false teaching. We're to show mercy even to the very worst. But with a needed caution of not getting stained by their sin. Jude's heart is not one of condemnation. He is very poignant. He is very clear in exposing the error but not with the goal of writing these people off. But in this hope of pointing out their error to call them back to the grace and the mercy and the true love of Jesus Christ. We need to be clear. We need to call out false teaching. And at the same time, We need to be merciful and reach out to those caught in false teaching. Sadly, I fear that as Christians, we are known so much more for the former, the condemnation, than we are for the latter, the mercy. May that not be true of us. May that not be said of Poland Village Baptist Church. May we be known first for our mercy. We're supposed to remember and build and pray and keep and look and show. How does this short letter end? This short letter ends in victory. It's amazing. It's totally impossible for the false teaching to prevail. Christ's power and preeminence are incomparable. Jesus' sovereignty and glory are unequaled. What he does for his followers cannot be broken because he cannot be matched. He eternally keeps them with his power. He presents his own blameless in him, before him in the presence of his glory with great joy to God, our Savior, Jesus, our Lord. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of of his glory, with great joy, to our only God, our Savior, 
through Jesus Christ. Our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Father, now, may the power of the poignancy of of what Jude wrote in this letter all this time ago, this old truth. Bring it alive and afresh in our hearts and help us to evaluate. We doing these steps so we can stand strong against false teaching. Where do we need to grow? How do we need to change? What commitment do we need to make? Lord, give us eyes to be able to see the false teaching that's around us to contend for the faith and then to reach out in mercy, in mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.